Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? This has been, as one California writer put it, the week that climate change came to us. If anyone thought it was some far-off, distant problem, now it's here, as far as our eyes can't see. Off the West Coast, ships sounded foghorns as they crept through smoke that was, well, it was smoke on the water. People with asthma or other breathing problems shut themselves in, as did many others worried about air quality. And in these pandemic times, the advice to get outside suddenly clashed with the need to stay indoors. Outdoor sports were suspended, even postal workers, you know, the ones who deliver through rain, sleet and snow. They pulled off their mail pouches and stayed inside too. And if that wasn't enough, five massive storms hit the Atlantic, not even halfway through what's being called a hyperactive hurricane season. A huge chunk of Greenland's ice cap, roughly equivalent in size to Cuba, broke off, part of a rapid melt in the Arctic. It is the smoke we're focusing on this week, though, as it drifts across North America and over to Europe, delivering a hazy, sooty, distinctly dark message that climate is changing everywhere. We'll look at the reality and how to cope. We start in the Kootenays at the confluence of the Kootenay and Columbia rivers in B.C. As smoke and haze drifted across the country and beyond, it caused the sun to turn crimson and temperatures to drop. Castlegar was blanketed in smoke, its air quality ratings at times the worst in B.C. and among the worst in the world. Leanna Zwick and her husband live in Castlegar. Hello. Hi. So you're close to the American border. I'm wondering how it has been there over the last while. It's been extremely smoky here. We got socked in on the weekend and uh, it's just made visibility conditions really poor. We don't recognize our landscape when we look outside our windows. And uh, of course, uh, it might feel like a, a foggy, cozy day, but the air outside is very acrid and uh, it's a terrible smell and it uh, causes all kinds of problems. So it, it hasn't been fun. What does it smell like? It does smell a bit like a bonfire, but not quite. And uh, it's it's irritating to the throat. And uh, sometimes if you're out too long, you can get a low-grade headache. Of course, people with respiratory um, ailments, it's a, a bigger challenge for them. Uh, but it's it's been a struggle. And that includes your husband, doesn't it? It does, yes. He's uh, had a, a lung condition called sarcoidosis, and uh, so he has to be very careful. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, also a COPD type of condition. Uh, it's chronic and, and pulmonary. And so it, we hunker down inside and uh, make sure that we uh, pay attention to filtration units. We have some portable ones that we pull out in such circumstances and uh, and avoid the, the beautiful outdoors, uh, which is sad because that's one of the primary reasons I think uh, many of us live in Canada. Have you been, have you been feeling trapped? 
Exactly that. And and I think it's when when your options aren't as uh, fulsome as they might usually be, it absolutely is a feeling of being trapped um, and, and the uncertainty of not knowing for how long. It, it, feels, uh, it feels very eerie and uh, almost apocalyptic, so it sounds all very dramatic, but it's hard not to uh, feel that kind of anxiety in these circumstances. You're talking about that being layered on top of everything else. Um, it strikes me that you're sounding very um, calm about all of this, and I, I'm a bit surprised by that, especially given the challenges that your husband's facing. Hasn't this been really challenging for you? It absolutely has, but I'm also sad to say that it's it's not the first time in our community, uh, I, the first time for this season, but our, our springs and our, our late summer falls uh, have been a little bit different in the past years, uh, f flooding concerns in the spring. And uh, a couple summers ago, we had a particularly difficult August where uh, most of us felt like our summer was season was stolen from us uh, for this very same reason. But just to realize that the pattern overall is one where this is going to happen with greater frequency. Uh, th this is not a way to, this is not acceptable as, as uh, an acceptable change to live. And, and this is a big, it's a big worry and it's a big threat. That's the big picture. But what about for you and your husband? Is it time to move? If this becomes the pattern of our spring and summer between the floods and the fires, uh, that there's every possibility that we would look at that. You know, of course, safety is uh, first and, and paramount, uh, mostly in our in our minds for ourselves. Uh, but where would where would you go that 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 any corner of the planet is is not going to be affected by climate change. And so I think that's the, the bigger dilemma. All right, Leanna, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Laura. You too. Leanna Zwick and her husband live in Castlegar, BC. When the skies spill with smoke, we're told to stay inside, but of course not everyone has a home with clean air to retreat to. In response, Vancouver opened four community centres and a library as cleaner air spaces this week for the first time, and that's distinct from summertime cooling centres or wintertime warming spots. And Seattle opened its first clean air shelter in its history, so people experiencing homelessness would have somewhere to escape the smoke. The head of King County, Dow Constantine, says it was a real shift after months of pandemic advice, saying fresh air is best. It has been difficult because we've been telling people to stay outside, to, to avoid being indoors with others. Uh, so now we're asking people to come inside. The shelter already had new robust ventilation because it had to be prepared for COVID-19 isolation. So as the smoke moved in, county officials opened it for what they thought might be just the weekend. The first night we had a little over 20 people. And then as word began to spread, more and more homeless people came to seek shelter. And uh, we actually started with capacity of about 70 or so. And I've uh, ordered it to be increased twice now. We had about 100 people last night. Seattle, normally known for gray and rain, could see the sky turn brown or even orange at times. But Constantine says not everyone recognized the health risk. We have never had to open a clean air shelter. And I think this is a sort of frightening preview of the future we face if we don't 
begin to take more seriously the challenge of global climate change. Uh, the fires uh, may have been contributed to by uh, forest practices that developed over the course of a century, but they also have a great deal to do with changing weather patterns. And fires in California and Oregon in Washington, and I'm sure in British Columbia, are going to become more frequent and more severe. And the impacts to human health and wildlife uh, are going to be significant. So we have to take on those immediate effects, even as we push our national leaders to finally take seriously the underlying causes. That's Dow Constantine, executive of King County in Washington State, talking about Seattle's first clean air shelter. Well, when the sky turns gray or brown or orange from wildfire smoke, it may feel surprising, but smoky summers are something we can expect more of, not less. And as unpleasant as that may be, my next guest says it's something we should prepare for. Michael Brower is a professor in UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Welcome. Thank you. What are the health impacts of breathing in smoky air like we've had this, this past week from U.S. wildfires? Well, for most people in the general population who are otherwise healthy, the, the health impacts from the smoke really should be quite transient and reversible. So people may feel kind of like a slight cold, perhaps a, a runny nose, a bit of a headache, a hoarse voice like I've got right now. And if they exercise, it may be a slight difficulty breathing. But what we're really concerned with are people that have pre-existing heart disease or lung disease. So people with asthma, people with what we call COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and people with type 2 diabetes. And for those people, um, inhaling the smoke can lead to um, much more severe uh, manifestations of that disease to the extent that we even see increased deaths um, in response to these kinds of smoke. Uh, events. Now, you've been involved in a project that's been been mapping climate health risks um, and people who are vulnerable to them in Vancouver, including what, from wildfire smoke. Who's most vulnerable? Well, we look at vulnerability from sort of three different perspectives. So we think about it as sort of a three-legged stool. So the first thing is actually um, who is exposed to the hazard. So where is the smoke uh, in this case? And smoke actually um, typically, we don't really see it in the city. So if we think about this from a, a broader perspective, it, it's actually often our rural communities, our interior areas. Um, the, another leg of the stool is, is who's sensitive. So it's those groups that I just mentioned, um, people with pre-existing heart and lung disease, people with asthma, for example, as well as the older and younger segments of the population. So seniors, um, very young children, and including even pregnant women. Um, we've seen some studies now showing that women who are pregnant, especially in the last trimester of their pregnancy, uh, they're more likely to give birth to a, a baby at lower weight um, if they're um, exposed to smoke during that, that period of their pregnancy. And then the third leg of the stool is, is what we call adaptive capacity. So that's how well can people actually adapt um, to um, facing these kinds of hazards. And in the, in the context of smoke, we're concerned with things like um, what are people's social support networks, uh, what's their education and their level of literacy, so can they actually um, respond to public service announcements, um, do they have sufficient income, for example, to buy an air cleaner, um, do they have the support networks so if somebody is checking in on them uh, to know whether they're, they're doing okay or not, and, and really all that together um, leads to the vulnerability, so it's really a combination of those factors. 
Okay. Well, when the bad air hits, we were told we're often told to go inside. But but you're also talking about people actually preparing before that. Why is that important? Well, we don't want to be scrambling um, in, in any kind of an event like this. Uh, same thing uh, as an earthquake. We're we're always talking about preparedness. So, um, for example people with those pre-existing diseases, if those diseases are well-managed, meaning uh, if people have been to their healthcare provider uh, early in the season or before the fire season, checking on their on their diseases or medication at the right level, do they have enough medication? Uh, do they need to switch to a new medication? All of those things are actually gonna lessen the impact of, of the smoke on them. And then thinking about something like uh, having an air cleaner. Um, so these are not very expensive. Um, many people can afford them. Uh, but if you go to buy one right now, they're probably sold out in the stores. So if you buy that in early in the season when you actually don't need it, then you're prepared. Uh, you have it in your home uh, if you do need it. And, and that's something that's really important, again, for people with these sort of underlying sensitivities. And then other things are, are done at the community level. So um, we've uh, opened up, for example, in Vancouver, we have clean air shelters. And that would be for people who don't have the proper supports that you were talking about earlier, people who are homeless and may not easily be able to find a way to get out of the smoke. Sure. Um, and we, we really think about this as uh, we need to protect our most vulnerable people meaning everybody in, in the population. And we're, we're sort of only as healthy as the most vulnerable um, among us are. So we want to make sure that these, um, these responses are accessible to everyone. Can you tell me how COVID has complicated all of this this year? So, so COVID um, impacts things in, in, in two different ways. So <clears throat> for these kinds of things like clean air shelters, we now have to take COVID into consideration. So if we're talking about people go to this place, um, we need to make sure that they're not going to a place that is going to be crowded and lead to sort of increased risk of transmission. And similarly, um, when we recently opened up schools, one of the things that schools were doing from a COVID perspective was trying to have more outdoor activities. But we don't want people outdoors during a smoke event like this. So that really means flexibility for example, for, for schools. The other aspect of COVID is that we've known for a long time that uh, air pollution in general, and, and we really don't have any indication that wildfire smoke is any different, makes respiratory infections more severe. And COVID is a respiratory infection. And so that co-exposure to COVID and air pollution may take what might what could be an otherwise mild infection more severe to the extent that they may need to go to hospital and then adding to that both the severity for that individual, but also adding to the, the stress on our healthcare system. So this season in particular was very, very important that we have all of this preparedness in place. And this is also a time that people really, really need to be serious about reducing the likelihood that they're going to be infected. If ever there was a time, it's now. In your years of studying this and talking to the public about it, what kinds of changes have you seen on how frequent these kinds of, of, of smoky skies, harmful smoky skies are? So there's no question that these have become more frequent events. We used to see them somewhere in the province of BC. There would be some community, typically interior, rural uh, communities, smaller communities that are surrounded by forests. But now we're seeing this affecting the, the populated centers much more frequently. And this isn't necessarily just a, a result of what's happening in, in the forest around us in BC. 
so that the event that we're experiencing right now is due to fires burning in Washington state, in Oregon, and even in California. So it's really our whole region being affected by smoke. So we, this is what we are going to have to deal with. And uh, I would say it's not even limited to BC. This smoke from these events is now drifting all across the continent. Um, and I've even seen reports that the smoke is uh, measurable in Europe. So this has become a not just a regional problem, but a, uh, actually a global problem. So does summer mean smoke now? Certainly summer um, now means uh, a high potential for smoke uh, in some place at, at some time. And I, that's unfortunate. That's sad. But that is our reality. And that, that really is, is the prudent uh, response. And are you practicing what you preach? Or are you taking care of yourself through this? I, can, I mean, I hear you clearing your throat. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I like I, I typically go on, uh, you know, on uh, long cycle rides uh, almost every day. And, and I've certainly been taking a break from that and, you know, hopefully waiting for a day or an hour or so when uh, when the air quality clears. We have real time monitoring. So we're measuring air quality levels throughout um, the populated areas, you know, many, many stations. We have forecasts for smoke. So part of this kind of becoming the, the reality, the, the new normal is looking at these smoke forecasts, looking at air quality measurements, just as, as though people are, are looking at weather forecasts. And it, it's actually been good to see that, in fact, on our you know, TV news, that part of the weather reports now, uh, again, sad, but th this is our reality. It, it's good to see that we're, we're starting to actually present these forecasts so people can actually plan around them to some extent. How the world is changing around us. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Michael Brower is a professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So smoke from wildfires is something we will see, breathe, and feel more often than we might be used to. The hazy skies that have rippled across the continent can come with a side dose of uneasiness or anxiety. But what do you do about that part, that feeling of wanting to go outside on a summer day, but you can't because the air is thick with smoke, and it's even harder during a pandemic when so many people are spending more time outside for physical and mental health. Ashley Consolo is the Dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies at Memorial University. She defines the sensation of seeing loss in the natural world as ecological grief or ecological anxiety. Ashley Consolo, hello. Hello, Laura. People have called the last few days around here and parts of the United States hellish, apocalyptic. Do those feelings of dread and doom amount to ecological grief or anxiety? 
Well, I think it's certainly a part of it. I mean, ecological grief and anxiety is a very natural response to to loss. And that loss can come in a variety of different ways to the natural environment, including what we're seeing with the very severe wildfires. And as we know from other forms of grief and other forms of emotional trauma, loss can manifest in, in different ways. And that includes, uh, you know, fear and dread and anxiety, um, sleeplessness, helplessness, hopelessness. You know, it's it's a whole spectrum of, of natural human response to to very scary and very concerning situations. In a sense, the way we're experiencing smoke right now around us, it's a, it's a lot different than watching, I imagine, your house becoming engulfed in flames or fleeing because of fire. How do things like smoke still have an impact on us mentally and emotionally? There's all different ways that people can experience this. And we often talk about it as direct or indirect effects. So you might not be at the front lines of the wildfires and might not be in that acute um, emergency situation, but you certainly are still affected when you, you see the smoke or you can't go outside or it's affecting your daily life. And it's also a reminder of the suffering that, that other people and other ecosystems are going through. Even so, if you're in, in a situation where you're not seeing fire coming down the hillside and your own house isn't threatened, you're still worried for other people. Yeah, certainly we, we see this and, and people talk about it as vicarious anxiety or anticipatory anxiety or concern. And I think it's a function of, of human empathy. You know, we understand the suffering and the loss and the pain of others. And, and that smoke stands as a very tangible um, example of what other people are going through. And, and then it also affects, you know, your, your own life and, and the life of people that are, are important to you when people can't go outside or those who have underlying health conditions that are respiratory or other issues that the wildfire smoke can cause. So I think, you know, there's, there's all different ways that we can respond um, to things like wildfires or floodings or hurricanes, whether or not we're at the uh, exact front lines of the event. There, there was a study uh, about the 2014 wildfire season in the Northwest Territories that you were involved in. What did the research find out about the toll that took on people's emotional well-being and mental health there? People talked about, um, you know, being being afraid at the front lines, feeling a lot of anxiety, um, sleep disruptions, concerns around their personal safety and the safety of friends and family. But then also um, responses related to not being able to go out on the land, um, not be able to harvest berries or travel safely or hunt, um, concerns about the loss of beloved homes and, and ecosystems, and also, you know, a lot of fear about what was happening to the natural world and the loss of, of other species or non-human bodies that these fires were engulfing at that time. Now, the, we're experiencing all of this now, though, in the middle of a global pandemic. And I'm wondering how that factor layered on top of everything else affects those feelings of climate anxiety. When you look at the wildfires or the smoke that's that's engulfing much of the West Coast and causing people to be unable to go outside or continue about their daily lives or access things that make them feel healthy and well, in the midst of a pandemic, when people are already struggling with other health issues and other anxieties and other concerns, both locally and globally, you know, those those culminate and can amplify each other and, and really cause, um, you know, increases in, in anxiety or fear or concern or sadness and a whole range of of emotional responses that are, are really quite natural when people feel various levels of, of threat. I'll give you another one. I'm feeling frustrated as heck about all of this because I can't go outside right now and it's supposed to be where I go to go hiking or go out for a cycle ride because it's just too smoky and it makes me so frustrated. What do you do then? 
Oh, that's such a hard one because for so many people, being outside and and exercising or walking or hiking or being on the water in the forest is where we get mental wellness from, where we decompress and where we deal with things like the global pandemic and other stressors in our lives. So finding ways to still get that exercise inside is much harder you know, finding ways to connect with people as we've been doing in, in an increasingly virtual world during the pandemic and just finding opportunities for joy and in other parts of your life, even though frustration is of, is extremely natural and, and makes perfect sense. So you talk about finding joy in other ways. I'm wondering what can we do about these feelings that, that, that are related to climate change when they can be so debilitating? When it comes to climate change, um, we know that people's lived experiences with climate grief, climate anxiety, mental health responses um, to climate change have far outstripped what we actually know in the literature. There's always a publication lag. Um, it takes a while for research to be done. And in the interim, while that's happening, people are still struggling. So having that opportunity to support all mental health through more resources finding supportive friends and families and loved ones that you can talk to, group discussion or group therapies. Um, there's a, a new group that's formed um, called the Good Grief Network. That's an online network of people who want to talk about grief related to the environment. Um, some people seek out more formal mental health services, such as counseling. Um, for others, it's it's finding forms of you know exercise or hobbies, things that bring joy. Um, there's also, for some people, a, a sense that, that we shouldn't really be complaining about all of this because other parts of the world suffer from the effects of climate change much more deeply than we do. You know, having understanding and awareness of what happens in other parts of the world and understanding that there are people who are at the very severe um, front lines of a change in climate is very important. But then also not minimizing your own stress and anxiety, because thinking about the large scale degradation of ecosystems and, and the related losses that come to that, we should all be experiencing various levels of, of anxiety or concern or sadness or stress. And so, you know, having that balance of attending to your own experiences and mental health stress and also understanding that there are others um, who may be more at the front lines or experiencing greater challenges or in more acute situation is important. Does that include you? I mean, you're an academic, so you might seem a bit at a bit of a remove from this, but do you struggle with those things as well? Yeah, from a personal level, I certainly do. And I think that's why uh, in many ways I do study it. You know, it, it helps to um, know that I can contribute to certain areas by working with people who are at the front lines in, in Northern Canada and, and Inuit Nunangat and have those stories and experiences out there and work with people to get their understandings and lived experiences out in the world. Well, following on that then, it, it, can you find solace in agency and in, in taking individual action on climate change? I think for many people you can, and getting involved in different environmental issues and challenges is certainly something that people um, find solace in. And I think some of that is is taking action, some of that is feeling that you're contributing positively to society, and some is also having that collective community, the kinship that comes from from volunteering or working with others or, or really connecting to something that you're passionate about and that you feel is making a difference. All right. I'll take you up on your advice, Ashley Consolo. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. Ashley Consolo is the Dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. And that does it for us this week. If you haven't had a chance to give us a review, please do. And we always want to hear from you. Email us your questions about climate change 
The address is earth at cbc.ca. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.